Hello, and welcome to the AIDS Petro Nerds podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis, and I will be your host for this podcast and many others to follow. Today, we are going to talk about oil prices. I'm not going to predict oil prices for you, but I'm definitely going to discuss them because I am not as much in the bull camp as I think everyone else at least seems to be right now. So right now, today is October 26th, and oil prices right now are pushing WTI, West Texas or Intermediate crude oil prices are pushing $53 a barrel, and Brent, global oil or international oil prices are basically pushing 60 So we're in, uh, in terms of price, it's getting very bullish. Now, the reason I'm hesitant to jump on that bull bandwagon is because I think a lot of the reasons that people talked about what, what was happening when we were in the 40s just weeks ago um, or months ago was not uh, those things to me haven't fundamentally changed. Um, and so the concerns of some of those those 40 things haven't changed. What I, Some of the biggest factors I see that have changed have been um, that we had a hurricane season in the U.S. and that contributed some tightness. Um, it blew out the Brent West Texas Intermediate price spread um, and has resulted in massive outflows of U.S. crude abroad. So we're, the U.S. is rough, roughly exporting about 2 million barrels per day of crude oil in addition to product. And we then we had a subsequent um, and very serious issue in Kurdistan where Kurdistan had a, a referendum vote um, in Iraq on September 25th, and um, they won. And so they it was a referendum vote for independence. Um, they won that vote, but then things basically collapsed. So it was a it was a, a gamble um, by the Kurds to do this, and it didn't work in their favor. It collapsed, and it since resulted in a in a lot of chaos in Kurdistan. And we'll get into that shortly. But these two events, I think, also now with um, some concerns, some renewed concerns about potential um, renewed sanctions on Iran have really given the market some some bullish momentum. And these things are real. So all these things took place and they're real, except um, the fundamentals of actually where we could see increased output, I don't think have changed dramatically. These things might be happening, but the things that were taking place in when oil prices just weeks ago were in the 40s and the concerns, like a couple months ago, the real concerns were about 2018 balances, right? They were about how much the U.S. could produce in 2018 and how much OPEC was going to produce and whether or not OPEC was going to extend their agreement past the second or the, the first quarter of 2018, so past um, when in March when it ends. So that those were the concerns, and then hurricane season happened, and we saw this this tightness happen in the market. That that is short lived, um, but it did impact balances um, and global balances, and I think it, it started helping to push um, some of the stock draws. So we saw an acceleration, I think, in some of those global stock draws, and that was big because, as OPEC has mentioned over and over again, part of rebalancing the market is really getting those stocks to draw down. And if you paid any attention to Cushing inventories in the U.S., I mean, those Cush- those inventories are really important. And when those inventories go up, oil prices go down. And when those inventories go down every week, um, you know, on Wednesday when they're released, prices go up. This week, um, oil uh, the, the inventories at Cushing actually increased. Um, they some analysts had expected um, an increase, but of a, of a lesser number. They increased just about 900,000 barrels. That's the first increase we've had basically since September 15th. So it is kind of a big deal. And that um, was a bit of an increase. I actually thought oil prices would pull back a little bit more yesterday. They didn't. Um, and I think that's partly because you have a lot of um, bots trading. You've got, uh, when everyone's on the bullish track, they stay on that bullish track. When everyone's on the bearish track, they sort of stay on that bearish track. So right now you got the bulls um, moving the market and that's that's what they're doing so but those 
those fundamental things, when I start looking at what has happened in the market, um, when we start actually looking at the stocks, so stocks have drawn around the world, and we, if we, if we look at actually the OPEC report and they break out where all the stocks are in the world, and we look at the U.S. stocks, they've come da come down considerably, but they're still well above the five-year average. So that's where things can shift considerably. So we went from dropping inventories in the U.S. for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then we we stopped yesterday. Okay, if that track, if that trend continues, that can you know, throttle this or that can can stop this change pretty quickly on on the bullish side. And that's to continue around the globe as well. And then we have to look at actual OPEC production. Now, there's a lot of articles that have come out from Reuters and others talking about this massive OPEC compliance. And OPEC has emphasized this, that they have 100 percent, 120 percent compliance in, in all this from their nations. The problem is with OPEC is that there's a lot of countries that are not in the OPEC agreement. So if you actually look at the production figures, Saudi Arabia is pushing nearly 10 million barrels a day of production. It's not like they had a, um, they, they cut production dramatically in that, um, in February of last year. Um, but since they've since sort of, their output has risen a little, but they've kept telling the market that we've really curbed our exports. So they're say that they're exporting less crude oil and therefore they're having a bigger impact on the market. And part of that, there's, there's some, some truth to that because obviously if they're exporting less, other places might have to draw down more stocks. But the problem is, is that crude is still in the market somewhere unless they're withholding it and they're just increasing their own stock build. But at that, that just means they could also release that in the future. So there's, there's one element there. And then we look at, um, we look at, actually what's happening with other countries um, that weren't part of the OPEC agreement, and that would, be, uh, that would be Libya and Nigeria. Now, Libya and Nigeria have both increased output. Nigeria's increased output considerably um, since this OPEC agreement was put, put in place, and um, they, weren't, they weren't part of it because they, of all the uh, political and um, the instability that was taking place in Nigeria and the same thing in Libya. And Libya output has also increased, but not as much, but we're talking about uh, several hundred thousand barrels a day that's been bumped. So that has had to be offset by, by the rest of OPEC members. So that's positive um, that the OPEC members are complying in that way, but it means that there's a big question mark if Nigerian output continues to rise. That's been buffered by losses in Venezuela with everything happening, all this Venezuelan volatility um, and, and production dropping. So it, it sort of helped offset that. And what I'm trying to paint here is a picture that these things are tight. So it, tight in the sense that one thing moves and then another thing moves. And um, stocks are drawing, but they're not, um, they're not at their lows. They're still well, well above their five-year averages. Um, they're a little bit, in the past couple months, they've been a little bit lower than they have been in the year prior. But these things can turn and change if the supply balance changes, if the U.S. does surprise to the upside, or if OPEC um, members also surprise the upside, upside. So there's some question marks I have on there. So a couple weeks ago, I gave a lecture to some um, executive MBA students at um, the University of Denver, and I talked about some of these these feelings I was having about um, the global oil market, especially on the supply-demand side, and just some of the figures. And I was looking at these OPEC numbers, and I was looking at the supply-demand balance and just combing through some of these numbers. Let's look at this. Libya went from, and Libya and Nigeria, remember, are the ones that are excluded from the OPEC agreement, which was about like a 
1.8 million barrel a day cut. Um, again, large, most of those cuts were, were taken from um, Saudi Arabia took the brunt of those cuts. Okay, so it's great that Saudi Arabia is is exporting less crude oil. The problem with that is, is where is that other crude going? So is it being built up as stocks and they're just holding on to it? Um, no, it, it doesn't look like that. It looks like they're refining it, which means they're, um, they're deciding to refine this into product, and that would mean their exports of refined product are increasing. Now, to be sure, Saudi Arabia is using a lot of that themselves. So they're refining a lot of um, crude oil, they're turning it into product, and they're using it at home. So in the summertime, uh, Saudi Arabia uses well over a million barrels a day uh, to support electricity demand, especially for air conditioning. Um, and then obviously that, that gets curtailed and, and they use less um, in the later months when things get cooler. But that means that Saudi Arabia can't possibly consume all that themselves, at least internally right now. So they are exporting. So even if you're cutting back on your total crude exports and they keep emphasizing this to the market, they emphasize on October 9th, um, iterating that they're committed to reducing their overall crude oil exports. And they've particularly done this for exports into the United States. But it's problematic if you're exporting into the global market product, because eventually product builds or, or the product market does weigh on crude prices. But if we look at Libya and Nigeria, in 2015, Libya was producing 400,000 barrels per day. Um, in September of 2017, so just the most recent month, Libya was producing nine, over 900,000 barrels per day, so nearly a 500,000 barrel a day bump. In 2016, Libya was producing just under 400,000 barrels a day, so a clean 500,000 day bump in Libya from 2016 to current production levels. Nigeria was producing just under 1.9 million barrels per day in 2015. That dropped again in 2016 to just under 1.6 million barrels per day. And that number really jumped um, in the past several months. So we've seen uh, now it's almost at 1.9 million barrels per day. So Nigeria had a, uh, a jump of a few hundred thousand barrels a day. So when you add Libya and Nigeria together, um, it's, it's several hundred thousand barrels a day crude um, added onto the market from 2016 to now. That's the difference. Now, Saudi Arabia went from, in, if we look at 2015, you know, they were just above 10 million barrels per day, about 10.1 million barrels per day. In um, 2016, they jumped to 10.4 million barrels per day. Again, remember, this is when OPEC added a bunch of production onto the market, completely offset all the, all the drops everywhere else, both in the U.S. Um, and other non-OPEC countries, and that created the market. So 2016, 10.4 million barrels per day. And then right now, uh, as of September, Saudi Arabia is producing about, about 10 million barrels per day, um, according to the OPEC secretariat. Now, if we look at, um, if we look at the direct communications um, that the OPEC secretary also posts, Saudi Arabia claims that they're roughly the same figures, that they're right in line, that they're producing just under 10 million barrels per day. So those are in line. If we look at Venezuela, now this is where the other loss really came in, is that Venezuela has lost um, just about 500,000 day of production from, from 2015 to date. So not a ton. So when we talk about that's we've offset the losses of Venezuelan um, production, and we've more, we've more than offset the losses with this increased output from OPEC. So because they're not in the agreement, that is problematic, um, and it's something to think about. And to me, Saudi Arabian oil production figures don't seem that low. Uh, this is we're looking at trying to rebalance, you know, the global oil market, and Saudi Arabia is is about producing about 10 million barrels per day. If we switch gears and look at Russia, they're producing 11 million barrels per day. They've moved, a, you know, a few, you know, 
tens of thousand barrels a day here and there in, in the last several months, but they've, they're producing uh, 11 million barrels per day. So when we look at actual production, and I think this is really important to think about because when oil prices collapsed in 2014, it was a culmination of two things. It was worries on the demand side and real risk and concern that you know, the demand growth from China was evaporating. Um, and then it was the supply side. We had way too much crude on our hands. We, the U.S. was pumping a lot of crude um, and OPEC was pumping crude. So between the two and all these other places that had um, outside of OPEC that were growing production in the North Sea and Brazil and elsewhere, we had too much supply on our hands. Now, since oil prices have dropped, we've seen some of those places in the North Sea and Brazil and elsewhere curb, you know, they've, that production has been curbed. Um, but like I said, all that and more was offset by OPEC production in when they ramped up production in the course of 2016. And I think we forget that it's easy to ramp up that production. So if prices move up a little bit and, you know, U.S. producers get comfortable, then they can produce comfortably within that range and still manage free cash flow and economic sentiment and, and handle investors, we could see U.S. production at one, it's going to be relatively stable, too. It could actually grow next year, um, maybe more than people expect if, if prices are pretty stable. And then three, couple that with growth out of um, potential growth out of OPEC um, if they don't if they roll off this agreement or if they maintain or increase production output a little bit. It's not like we have a, a, a few million barrel a day void that we have to fill here. OK, so if we think about this for a second, right, Saudi Arabia probably has the ability to add another million barrels a day production if they wanted to. Not saying they will, I'm just saying they, they theoretically could. Uh, Russia's producing 11 million barrels per day. They probably can't ramp that up too much, but they could eke out a little more. And then we have um, some question marks on, on the U.S. growth side, but we know that the U.S. is producing about 9.3 million barrels per day, and that is set to rise even modestly next year. Let's back up a second and talk about Russia. So the Saudis went to Russia um, several weeks ago, there was a big courting arrangement. If you remember, Putin invited them over. They had this conference, and uh, the Saudis were excited about this because they thought they were going to agree to um, an, extent, an a extension at that time. They thought they were going to basically get the Russians on board to basically agree to another um, extension after the, the OPEC and non-OPEC agreement rolls off in the first quarter of 2018. That did not happen. And that was very interesting because uh, the Saudis seemed disappointed in the comments by the Russians at that meeting. Now, remember, this was just a few weeks. This wasn't that long ago. So only a few weeks ago, the Saudis were going to Russia and trying to court this arrangement and make this happen. And it was only a few weeks ago that the Russians said, no, we're not that interested at the very moment. We, we might do something in the future, but we're not that interested. Since then, there's just been a flurry of news that sort of went about. Uh, the Saudis may have potentially, you know, tabled their IPO for next year. Um, the bull, bulls have, have ran really strong in the past few weeks. Um, and then OPEC is, and Saudi Arabia have said lots of little things. Yesterday, uh, Russia came out and said we will increase output by 100,000 barrels per day if OPEC and the Saudis don't agree to a cut. So that was big. Um, and that was Novak that was actually saying that. So the energy minister, Alexander Novak, said that his country would, would basically increase output by 100,000 barrels a day if the OPEC agreement wasn't extended. So my question here is that, look, it was only a few weeks weeks ago that Saudi Arabia was courting Russia. They thought they were going to get this thing extended. They were all about extending these agreements, pushing oil to set $60 a barrel and doing this IPO. And then this IPO gets thrown a little question mark into it because they think about maybe we're not going to put it on 
Um, you know, we're not going to put it on the night or the New York Mercantile Exchange. We're not going to put it on in in Britain. Um, and maybe we're going to list it in China. So that sort of that put some haze on this, but that didn't seem to impact the oil markets. And then now the Russians are saying, well, you you have to agree to the agreement or we're going to increase output. So why did they do this? I mean, did the Russians weeks ago thought that the market was rebalancing and everything was great? And now they're concerned that um, if they if they don't keep this agreement, then it'll go up. They probably are because no one truly knows what's really going on. And I think there's a intense focus on these stocks and saying that, you know, in the last several weeks, these stocks have have drawn down. And I think what's really important to realize is that these stocks drew down when with hurricane season. And so I think hurricane season had a, a pretty big impact on the market in the short term. And we have to really see how that plays out. Now, on the demand side, uh, demand, as I was mentioning, you know, while oil prices collapsed was because there was concern about demand. Things seem relatively stable in China. There's been some volatility on that, you know, actual inflows of crude oil and demand this year because um, China's been dealing with with pollution. And so they've curbed some of their the use of their teapot refineries um, to curb that pollution. And that has an impact on oil. But that being said, they are still stock building. So I think we could, um, you know, we could see some of that those imports continue to increase. And it looks like at least they're projecting GDP to be higher next year or so and, and pretty stable this year. So everything's not down and out. India has been sort of that bright shoot that while China might have been fading a little bit, oil demand in India was continuing to increase and obviously not as sizable, but it's a growing country and it was continuing to increase pretty rapidly. Now their economy is declining a bit um, and we're going to see, we could see that a threat to to oil demand decline as well. So that could be problematic. The other side of the demand story is that it's really been from it's really been from non-emerging market countries. This has been from OECD developed countries, namely the U.S. and Germany. And part of this has been a, a, a finally a, de, a real but delayed response to lower oil prices. So oil prices are low and has helped help these economies uh, increase their demand for oil. The U.S. has seen some industrial growth. It's really been led by by diesel demand. I mean, we're seeing that uh, on the industrial sector. It's pretty buoyant right now. Um, it's done pretty decently. There is definitely some doubt and question marks in U.S. economic growth. Um, should a tax reform plan not go through, I think we could have some there's some real concerns about economic growth in the U.S. And we also are expected to see continued um, rate hikes out of the Fed, uh, which could also impact economic growth. So we have those things there. And then we look at Germany and we look at Europe as a whole, which has been pretty resilient in terms of oil demand and economic growth over the past year. Now, there's obviously some concerns there with continued Brexit talks and negotiations that haven't really gone anywhere quite yet. Well, Germany has been really leading um, leading the bullish wagon of, of demanding or increasing their demand for crude oil because the, of economic growth, which has been really partly because crude prices are so low. If crude prices go up, we could see that soften a little bit. Um, and I think you just have some overarching economic risks in Europe. Not huge, not like the ones we were seeing several years ago with, with Eurozone collapse. Um, and we, we've seen Macron get um, elected in, in France. So I think some of the, the far right concerns are um, have abated. But I think in general, you still have some economic concerns that things aren't perfect in Europe. Things are not perfect in the U.S. Things look good, but they have to continue on that path. And because we have so much supply readily available, any increase in output, little bits of increase in output can have an impact on, on crude oil prices. And I think the market has just gotten a, a little bit ahead of itself right now.
Okay, so all that being said, let's play devil's advocate here and talk about some actual actual concerns with the oil market. There's two ongoing uh, real concerns in the Middle East, and that would be uh, the Kurdistan, the referendum for independence vote that took place on September 25th that has destabilized um, uh, the, the Kurdistan region, um, as well as uh, these concerns about um, renewed sanctions on Iran. So those are two real factors that are that are have put some, I think, risk premium back into the market. We haven't really seen a risk premium or, or price premium in crude oil prices since basically the collapse in, in 2014. Um, so what's happened in Kurdistan is essentially, um, if, if re- Kurdistan is a semi-autonomous region of Iraq. The Kurdistan region has sort of expanded in the past several years. Um, it wasn't like the territory was definitively theirs, but Basically, when ISIS came into Iraq, um, the Peshmerga or the the, um, Kurdistan military um, helped push ISIS back. And part of that, in doing that, they um, took hold of of other regions that weren't necessarily theirs, um, they didn't have prior in Iraq. And part of that was the Kirkuk oil fields um, or the the city of Kirkuk, which is a a major part of the of the oil production um, in Kurdistan. Now, so they had this basically since 2014, um, and then the leaders in Kurdistan opted for this referendum vote, which they won, and they got this referendum for independence on September 25th. But since then, things have sort of been in disarray, and really the international community did not support uh, this referendum vote because they were concerned about stability um, in Iraq. And just a little bit of a side note, there's some problems with that because... um, Iraq, the Iraqi military has been really working with the Iranians, um, and so Iran sort of has a a pseudo role in Iraq right now, and it's really complicated the situation. But all that being said, essentially, uh, so a few days ago, the um, the Iraqis overtook Kirkuk and took it back. So now, um, now the Iraqis have Kirkuk, and this has really thrown some considerable um, disarray into Kurdistan, especially with um, the payments they have to pay for for oil operators that are there. So they owe some traders like Trafigura and Vital a lot of money. Um, They have payments they have to make every month to these operators, which they're not making. The the oil and gas operators are there. Chevron has basically tabled its activity right now. Um, Exxon controversially moved into Kurdistan in 2011. And basically said uh, the other day that they were they were pulling out of a couple of the blocks. That really is mainly for economic reasons. I think they didn't; those blocks didn't seem to be super viable. Um, and when they they looked at the actual reserves, they weren't what they expected. So, and then couple that with what's happening in the region, it, it just it's another it's another blow to the Kurds. However, in all of this, they have managed to bring in um, Russian investment. So the Russians are happy to get involved. Um, the Kurds, though the Kurdistan owes um, Rosneft basically over a billion dollars, though, because they haven't made payments. And then Rosneft has agreed to more activity levels and, and increased money to go in. So basically, the Russians will essentially own what's going on. Now, in terms of the actual output, there's a lot of questions on whether or not the the how much output has been cut. Um, and I don't think it's a huge amount. The numbers have been across the board, some estimates of, of a few hundred thousand barrels per day. Um, but they're working with, um, because the Rockies retook the city of Kirkuk, they're working to restabilize these flows. So this is, this basically could be a temporary, a very temporary situation um, that could get resolved. And so if you're, if, if folks are expecting this to be a sustained problem, um, it's not likely. I think there will probably be, you know, there, there could be a grand bargain 
um, with the with Kurdistan. And just recently, they or yesterday, they said that they um, are going to suspend that that referendum vote. So there is probably going to be a grand bargain, and we are going to see stability come back again. This is the Middle East, so you can always put a pin in that and put a question mark, and, and things could be renewed, and you could have a threat to oil and gas production. But I think the other side is that if we're if we're looking at Iran in particular, um, with the Trump administration putting renewed pressure on Iran and saying basically because the Obama administration put the sanction or made the agreement with Iran themselves and did not go through Congress, um, that means that Trump does have the authority to uh, to remove that. And even if global sanctions are not removed, um, just the just the threat of what Trump is doing could really throw Iran's economic environment into disarray because they Iran has been working to court a lot of investment to come into Iran, um, especially on the oil and gas sector to shore up um, to shore up their oil fields, get investment, and bring in money. And they definitely they have a they have a, a deficit, and they really do need the money. And so, if anything were to impact um, oil export figure numbers, that would be that would be a devastating blow for them, um, and that would certainly have an impact or could have an impact on oil prices. Um, But all that being said, I just want to point out that um, I think we've forgotten in the past two weeks with with, um, higher oil prices, I think a lot of people have forgotten how quickly and how easily OPEC increased output in 2016. And so when in 2014, when they were in 2014, when oil prices collapsed, OPEC was producing just over 30 million barrels per day. And in 2016, they were producing well over 33 million barrels per day. So in the midst of the oil price collapse, they ramped up production considerably. And production has since dropped just over a million barrels per day. But I wouldn't I, I would caution everyone to consider that that um, they that happened whilst oil prices were were down, not when oil prices um, not when oil prices were up. So I think that's just very important to to take into account and consider. Okay, so that's essentially my two bets on oil prices, um, that demand might not be as strong um, as people are projecting, that production might not be as constrained as people are thinking, and that those, um, those stock levels are not as tight as people are, are not as low as people are expecting. And therefore, um, everything is in, in close proximity with one another, so it doesn't take much to shift it. And also that oil traders are having a huge impact on this. Um, and the bulls are sort of running with this. But just remember weeks and months ago when the bears were running with it and oil prices were really pushing those low 40s. I want to make a quick comment on gas to oil ratio as folks are, are probably looking at a lot of Midland Basin producers and Delaware Basin producers as their Q3 earnings calls are, are released. Um, I want to talk about gas oil ratio just for a minute and then talk quickly about um, the Halliburton and Slumberjay earning calls, and then we'll wrap it up. On gas oil ratio, I think it's really important that um, people think about this in the right context. So your gas to oil ratio is how much gas is being produced per barrel of oil. The only reason this should ever be a problem for an operator should impact um, that operator um, and how investors feel about it is if that operator is not capturing those gas volumes and selling them. So I think there was concerns with Pioneer Natural Resources and some other operators subsequently when they saw production figures out of just a pure production chart and they see the oil oil 
um, production is going up, but gas production seems to be going up faster and saying that, well, their gas to oil ratio is out of whack. And now we are concerned um, that they're hitting the bubble point in the reservoir too fast and, and everything's a mess. Well, none of that should really matter. If you're, if you're hitting your oil targets and you're producing that oil, if you're also getting more gas, and that's going to happen no matter what, uh, you're, you're probably going to increase your gas output as your, as your wells age, as your fields fields age, etc. This is going to happen. But it matters, are you capturing that gas and are you selling it? Um, and if those operators have the gas infrastructure and they're selling it for market price, then and if they're an oil operator, then the, this is just an extra benefit to them because they're selling this. Now, if they're external constraints like in-basin constraints. So if the Permian Basin ends up producing a lot of gas and there isn't sufficient takeaway capacity in the basin, then it doesn't matter if that operator has infrastructure connected to their wellhead because if they're not selling it into a bigger system that's moving that that gas on and selling it, then they're in trouble. And there has been some concern that if, you know, if the basin is going to produce a ton of gas, demand has to keep up with it, infrastructure has to be there. So you have to have enough pipeline capacity and that actually has to go somewhere. And the projections right now are that a lot of that is going to go into Mexico. But those pipelines, this all has to come to fruition and be built. So in the short term, I just caution folks that when they look at these operators and then they're thinking about them, just because your gas to oil ratio might be going up, you're producing a little bit more gas um, than you were oil and maybe in the, the quarter before or whatever, that's not a reason to necessarily freak out. Those operators, what needs to be viewed is whether or not that they have the adequate infrastructure for the gas and they're selling it into the market. Um, and if, that's, if they're doing that, then there shouldn't be a major concern. So service sector, the greatest thing about third quarter earnings or any quarter earnings is that the service sector typically comes out with earnings before operators. So you get a bit of a taste of everything before it happens, and it actually gives you some time to, to look through those earnings calls. So both Halliburton, Schlumberger, uh, Baker Hughes, now Baker Hughes GE, um, BHGE, have all released their earnings, and they give us a little bit of a highlight for, for what's happening in the market. Now, they differ considerably from, we've talked about this, I think, before in previous podcasts. We've written a lot about this in our, in our previous papers um, with Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, but service companies tend to differ dramatically from the sentiment of their, from operators, because they're obviously on the other side. Schlumberger, in particular, differs from that. We'll get into that in just a second. But Schlumberger basically said we they're seeing stronger drilling activity in North America, and they're real seeing a, a sort of a, a bump, a pop in, in North American activity. Everybody has reiterated this. Uh, 2017 has, has pretty much been a bang-up year for service operators because they've been so busy in the Permian Basin. But what a lot of people look at uh, for Schlumberger for is actually to give them a temperature uh, reading on the global oil market. So Schlumberger typically provides some color on what they see is happening. So they talk about the reduction in global oil inventories, and they think that in the third quarter, this demonstrates that the oil market is now in balance. So they say this, um, and they think this is creating uh, the required foundation for further increase in oil price and inevitable growth in global E&P investments. And I'm quoting that last part there. So they they are saying they are seeing, um, seeing a rebalance. And this sort of gets back to some of my earlier comments that I'm making, that everybody's basically saying we're in rebalance mode and the bulls have just taken over the market. And uh, obviously, I'm not quite on that wagon yet, as I mentioned. So while Slumberger notes that there's been increased activity and their business is doing well because of North America, they also are making the point that um, Brent um, global 
crude oil prices are now in backwardation and that they are seeing faster inventory draws in stocks and that these are approaching the five-year average. So they're making the bullish case on crude oil prices. And then in North America, this is where they start talking about ENPs. And Schlumberger does tend to be a little hard on ENPs. In, in multiple earnings calls, we've seen this in, in years past. So they say in North America land, where the ENP companies have added significant capex over the past year, the production growth is still falling short of expectations, driven by supply chain inflation, operational inefficiencies, and the need to step out from from the tier one acreage. This has led to a moderating investment appetite where the previous pursuit to production growth is now being balanced out with an equal focus on generated solid financial returns and operating within cash flow. So this gets back to the point that we were making in our previous podcasts and that we've made extensively, uh, or we're continuing to make extensively in our, our HedgeAware product, but also in a, a recent paper we're doing with the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies on the financial performance of these operators is going to matter. And there we could really be seeing some op- some moderating. They say, um, Sumberjay continues to say, quote, this moderation can be seen in the flattening trend of the U.S. land rig count during the third quarter, and it is also reflected in our customers' 2018 activity outlook. The more tempered activity outlook for the U.S. land combined with the short cycle nature of the business has an immediate impact on the outlook uh, on the outlook for production growth, which for 2017 and 2018 has been revised down by 100,000 and 500,000 barrels per day, respectively. This clearly has material impacts on the global supply and demand balance. So basically, Schlumberger is saying here that, look, we've revised our, our production forecast down for the U.S. based upon these activity levels. This is um, not everyone has reiterated this, but this is there's a, a obviously the sentiment on renewed investor scrutiny is serious and that these operators have to get um, free cash renewal is very serious. So how much of an impact this is going to have on production, though, is not quite certain um, and whether or not we will see we were expected to, I mean most people were saying that the U.S. was going to grow well over a million barrels per day next year and I think that's obviously being there's a, a wrench completely being thrown into that but how much the U.S. is going to grow or will it if it just maintains flat and what kind of impact that will have on the global oil market is still very uncertain okay now Halliburton wasn't didn't get into the weeds nearly as much talking about global oil prices or um, sort of the economic environment. They did talk about the completion side of the business, which is very interesting because they also mentioned that in their second quarter earnings. And if you recall, Halliburton mentioned in their second quarter earnings that they saw a piece of data that suggested that sand volumes, the, the amount of sand being pumped per horizontal well, was peaking, that it had showed a, a peak. But it was the first data point and they didn't want everyone going crazy. And they used the phrase uh, tapping on the brakes, that some operators were tapping on the brakes. So in their latest earnings call that just came out recently, they said, um, quote, we said operators were beginning to optimize as opposed to maximize the use of sand and in turn technology to increase production. This trend held true as we saw average sand per well remain flat sequentially. So they did actually see this. Um, Sand use remained flat sequentially. But it was it continued to rise in the Permian Basin, but in basically all the other basins in the Bakken, in the Powder River, in Wyoming, in the Eagle Ford, etc., uh, sand usage remained flat. So they attribute this to operators knowing those reservoirs and those plays better, and that the testing and experimentation continuing in the Permian Basin is driving those those increased volumes. Um, there also is a correlation that they're not mentioning is that just the the sheer lateral length of those wells is less. Um, so over time, as those laterals increase, they're going to be pumping more sand. So just in terms of the development of the Permian, it's not it's not where these um, these other plays are. That it's continuing. It's still in that development mode. 
And they really mentioned that the, about the completion intensity. So they basically say the industry, quote, is drilling approximately the same footage as in 2014 with half the amount of rigs, um, while completion intensity is obviously it's significantly increased. And we've known that. Okay, so on this on sand in particular, Halliburton said that they had basically two consecutive quarters um, for data points that showed that there was flat um, sand usage. That total volume for Halliburton continued to increase, but quarter over quarter, they had two quarters that were flat. Um, and that their conversations with customers indicated that they are focused on cost-effective production. So that that might be why we're seeing a, um, a flattening in this. Um, that they're hearing a lot of anecdotes about sand use today, um, but that based basically upon the individual operators and their dealings with them, um, that's what they're actually seeing. And that um, for Halliburton in particular, sand per well was down in the Bakken, the Rockies, and the Northeast. Um, but again, like I said, it was up in the Permian Basin. And they say this is because um, these operators understand the characteristics of their reservoirs and they've sort of streamlined um, their operations approach uh, to doing this and optimizing the sand volumes and doing this more efficiently. Now, obviously, the verdict is still out on that, on, on what's going to happen with sand. Uh, we talk extensively about completions, completion design changes, the role of high-intensity completions, and the massive amount of sand used in wells. Um, we talk about this extensively in the report. We, we just completed it for Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. It will be released in the coming weeks, so please um, keep, uh, you know, keep tabs on our website or reach out to us. We'll make sure you get that paper and we'll, we'll send it out to folks that are on our, our mailing list. Um, if you're not on our mailing list, sign up as a contact and, and we'll get you put on there. Um, so we'll be talking about that extensively. And we have a, a section in there, a financial section, where we look at free cash flow and we look at um, capital expenditures. And probably the biggest single threat to uh, you know, these high intensity completions or increased completions sizes is cost. And that is that um, these operators really do have to rein in spending, as we mentioned in our in our previous podcast. Um, and that's probably something that's, that's really going to have an impact um, on how much uh, sand and fluid they're pumping down these wells, at least in the short term. Okay, lastly, in the Baker Hughes G call, they mentioned that there's obviously a need to continue to increase um, and drive productivity gains for their clients. And they mentioned that while their customers, they think, are generally quite positive about the oil outlook for 2018, that they really need to have better insight into 2018 budgets before they can make those uh, assertions. Um, and that as a little shout out for Hedgeware, something that Baker Hughes mentions is that um, they need to know what the operator's hedge positions are um, in order to move forward. And we, we are actually hearing this echoed by other service providers that have mentioned in the earnings call um, how important hedges are um, to the company. And so I... I want to make another shout out to our, our Hedgeware product is that keep that in mind when you're going through um, third quarter earnings is that these operators are going to be talking about their hedge positions quite a bit. Um, and there's some some real concern there if some operators have hedged a lot and uh, prices actually go up, which means they'll be well underwater on those hedges versus if prices um, stay muted or actually go down in 2018 and these operators haven't hedged at all. So just think about that volatility going forward. And lastly, I just want to uh, reiterate the paper that we are publishing with Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. I encourage you all, again, to check out our website. This paper will be out shortly. We really look forward to your feedback um, and look forward to you reading it. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. I look forward to chatting with you again next month and doing uh, a third quarter earnings wrap-up. Um, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.